a Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. We take a moment, as always, to thank all of our Patreon supporters. And, of course, thank you for personal donations as well. They can be one-time donations. Every little bit helps. Remember to check out the home of the Mountain Mysteries online at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. You'll find a whole lot of resources there, including places to get your favorite Mountain Mysteries gear and swag. They would make outstanding Christmas idea gifts or gifts for birthdays and so much more. And you'll help us to bring these stories to the mass like we've been doing. Also, make sure to join us on Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings, which are on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and other platforms. And get in on the conversations on our Discord server as well. Oh, to believe like you were a child again. Childhood is supposed to be a magical time, a time when the world is apparently at our fingertips and anything is possible. It's a time when we believe in things that somewhere along the way into adulthood, we lose sight of. And it seems like the more time goes on, the earlier that happens. It's a time when it's where we make our fondest memories and we breathe in a world with love and compassion in those around us and when we excel it's full of hopes and dreams it's also a time that when someone tells us something we take it as an absolute truth we don't view anyone around us as meaning any harm and no one around us would ever hurt us let alone some of the despicable acts thoughts and desires that certain people have oh if only that were the truth sadly though it can be so very far from it There are those out there in this world that would, and in fact have, indulged in their deepest, darkest, and twisted desires, and those that do and have done so very often. We learn quickly not to trust people, and that some of these beliefs, in a world full of kindness and happiness, is in fact null and void and not worthy of the honors of any such faiths that we may place in them. But every once in a great while, someone comes along and they make us reconsider that notion. They may make us believe, if only for a moment, that the works of this world are not entirely dark, ominous, and foreboding. They shine a light, maybe from heaven itself, to a darkened earth to show us that the world is not entirely evil and lacking in light, but rather, in these rare instances, they inspire love, forgiveness, and compassion, despite whatever may have happened to them. This is an episode about triumphing over tragedy, inspiring hope, not despair, love over hate. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 31, The Nightmare of a Child, The Mountain Mystery of Elizabeth Ann Smart.
There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Long. Elizabeth Ann Smart was born into a devout Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints family on the 3rd of November, 1987 in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was the second of six children to a successful real estate developer and homemaker. Elizabeth was known as a kind, smart, shy, and obedient child. Her greatest passion was for playing the harp, which she began performing at the age of five and practiced four hours each day. By the time she reached middle school, Elizabeth was sought out to perform at local weddings and funerals, and she regularly participated in the annual fall concert at the Capitol Rotunda in Salt Lake City. Elizabeth was also a skilled equestrian and distance runner who was training to compete in cross-country racing when she reached high school. Well, she went to Bryant Intermediate School, where she was known as an intelligent and diligent student. Elizabeth and her mother Lois came across a clean-shaven man named Brian David Mitchell, panhandling in downtown Salt Lake City. Lois handed over $5 and said he could earn more by working on the family roof and offered the beggar, who called himself Emmanuel, accepted for a day job in November. It was on June 4, 2002, when Elizabeth and her family attended an end-of-school awards ceremony at her school, where the 14-year-old won several awards for academics and physical fitness. They rushed through the meal in an attempt to get Elizabeth to the awards ceremony, in which she was even going to play the harp there. The house still smelled of the potatoes that Lois had burned in her haste. That evening, Elizabeth would spend a lot of time persuading her parents to let her join her best friend's family on a vacation in a small town in Utah, only to have her older brother Charles tease her about how boring the trip was going to be. She shot back, Hey, what if those are the last words you ever say to me? That night, before turning out the light, Elizabeth put on her red silk pajamas her mom even had a matching set, and read Ella Enchanted to Mary Catherine. It was early the next morning, about an hour after midnight, that Elizabeth was awakened in the bedroom that she shared with her younger sister, Mary Catherine, by the sound of footsteps and the feeling of cold metal against her cheek. She woke up to a male voice hissing in her ear and the sensation of something cold at her throat. The knife. Don't make a sound, the man said. Get out of bed, or I'll kill you and your family. Elizabeth had no idea how the man had actually gotten into her bedroom. As far as she could tell, Mary Catherine was still asleep. The man told her to grab shoes, and, pressing the knife against her, 
prodded her out of the house. Federal Heights. The Salt Lake City neighborhood where the Smarts lived is tucked into the base of the Wasatch Mountains. Mitchell led Elizabeth through steep, rugged terrain, heavy underbrush, big boulders, a dry stream bed that is walled in by thickets of scrub oak. Well, after a while, Elizabeth realized that her captor, who had dark hair and a scraggly gray beard, was indeed the local beggar she and her mother had encountered earlier. Her mother had once given him money on the street and her father had hired him to do work on their roof. She didn't know him as Brian David Mitchell, though. He had only told the smarts that his name was Emmanuel. At the Salt Lake Temple, he had once been chosen to portray Satan in biblical reenactments, but the church had recently excommunicated him for issuing his own prophecies and revelations. Elizabeth asked Mitchell why he was doing this, and he said, You are my hostage. You'll learn. Elizabeth had a dreadful thought. If Mitchell took her that far from home and then murdered her, her parents might never know what really happened to her. They might even think that she had ran away. If you're going to rape and kill me, please do it here, she said. That way somebody will find my body. All Mitchell said was, keep moving. As the sun came up, they created a ridge and staggered into a grove of mountain oaks. Mitchell had set up camp there, which was being tended to by a woman in a long robe. Mitchell called her Hepziva. Her real name was Wanda Barzee, and she was his wife. In the mid-80s, they'd met at a group therapy session run by the Mormon church. Barzee had been newly divorced, and Mitchell was in a collapsing marriage. Barzee had eventually abandoned her children to be with him, and they spent the intervening years panhandling across the country and occasionally pulling a small covered wagon like the Utah Pioneers. Barzee had accepted Mitchell's revelations, including one commanding him to take a series of Mormon girls as wives. In my story, Elizabeth Smart writes, I studied her hopefully, but her hard stance and cold eyes told me that she was anything but a friend. She had a wild look about her, emotional and tense like a strand of wire that was being pulled too tight. The woman told Elizabeth to take off her clothes. Elizabeth cried and refused, but complied after Barzee warned her that Mitchell would rip them off. Mitchell would now perform a bizarre wedding ceremony. When Mitchell told Elizabeth that she was now his wife, she screamed, and he threatened to cover her mouth with duct tape. She told him that she hadn't even started her period yet, and Mitchell asked Barzee if that was a problem. She said no. Then he raped Elizabeth. Elizabeth said that afterwards, she didn't feel like a whole person anymore. She felt dirty and broken. She asked herself, who would ever love me? She even wondered if her family would want her back after this. She said that she tried to fight him off of her and later testified, a 14-year-old girl against a grown man, well, that doesn't even out so much. The night of Elizabeth's kidnapping, her younger sister, Mary Catherine, had pretended to be asleep in the other bed while silently attempting to observe her sister's kidnapper in the dark. She said that she stayed in bed. She was scared. She couldn't do anything. She said, I was just shocked, petrified, and I didn't know what to do knowing someone had come into my bedroom and taken my sister. After Elizabeth's abduction, her sister laid in bed for hours, purely petrified. 
She finally went into her parents' bedroom and said, Elizabeth is gone. You won't find her. A man come and took her. Richard Rieke, a career criminal who also worked at the smart home, was arrested for a parole violation, though he is not yet a formal suspect at this point. Four weeks later, he is charged with stealing jewelry and other items from both the Smarts and another family in the neighborhood. Richard would later die in prison from a brain hemorrhage. The Smart family hoped that his passing would move people to come forward with information. Mitchell raped Elizabeth daily. For the first three months, he chained her ankle to a cable strung between two trees. He warned her not to talk about her family and declared that she could no longer call herself Elizabeth. She was now to be called Sir Jessup. Mitchell and Barzee had sex in front of her. He made Elizabeth look at pornography and drink alcohol, telling her that she had to descend to the depths before she could rise up and become pure again. She was often desperately hungry and thirsty, since they were dependent on what Mitchell called plunder. A plunder is groceries that are shoplifted during Mitchell's treks to the city. After about three months, Elizabeth's ordeal took a still yet stranger turn. Mitchell's personal theology allowed him to indulge his appetites, and on one of his trips to Salt Lake City, he satisfied cravings for beer and fast food. Barzee was resentful and talked him into taking her and Elizabeth with him. They began to accompany him on these trips to the city, shrouded in white robes, headdresses, and veils. For the first time, they ended up at a party where Mitchell, in a robe and sandals, spent half the time preaching against sin and the rest of it, drinking himself into oblivion. These encounters with the outside world, in which Elizabeth remained mute and compliant, are the most discomforting part of the story. But then, her parents, the police, and hundreds of volunteers had been searching for her for months. Her photographs were all over the place. They were on local billboards, telephone poles. Anywhere you looked, you saw a picture of Elizabeth Ann Smart. But Mitchell, Barzee, and Elizabeth walked around in Salt Lake City in plain view. They took the bus, shopped at grocery stores, and spent all kinds of time in parks. As Elizabeth writes in My Story, their strange garb seemed to repel people who might otherwise have come closer or maybe even started asking questions. Passers-by crossed the street to avoid them. Elizabeth remembers looking pleadingly at an older woman in the Salt Lake City Greyhound bus station until the woman snapped at her. What are you staring at? Don't you know that's rude? Why don't you take that rag off your face? Though Elizabeth does not make this point in her book, self-styled prophets are not that rare in Salt Lake City, Utah, and although the Mormon church long ago renounced polygamy, it is often tolerated at arm's length in Utah. If local residents assumed that this particular street preacher had a couple of sister wives in tow, they may not have considered that situation manifestly alarming. Elizabeth found it crushing to walk down the street like a ghost, straight through the city where she grew up, and always reminds audiences not to be bystanders. She told the crowd in Washington, what if... By one simple question, you saved a child's life. Or, if you were able to call the police and they were able to step in when a husband was beating his wife, wouldn't that be worth the slight discomfort you might feel? Or the slight embarrassment if you were wrong? In Elizabeth's case, people did 
occasionally say something. At that party, a few girls managed to ask Elizabeth how she was doing before Mitchell cut them off. One day at the downtown library, Mitchell, Barzia, and Elizabeth were sitting at an out-of-the-way table on the second floor when a man came over and introduced himself as a homicide detective. Elizabeth was dizzy with hope and anticipation and gut-wrenching fear. Under the table, Barzee's hand clamped down on her leg, the fear won out. The detective asked them to remove Elizabeth's veil, noting that the police had received phone calls from people who were concerned that she might be a kidnapping victim. Mitchell calmly insisted that Elizabeth was his daughter and that his religion forbade him to reveal her face to a strange man. Elizabeth couldn't bring herself to speak. Officer, Mitchell said, if she were the person you were looking for, why would she just sit there? The detective left. Mitchell gloated as they left the library. Elizabeth writes, it was maybe the lowest I had ever felt. It's clear from Elizabeth's memoir and from those other former captives that incidents like this, in which an outsider asks questions but accepts dubious answers, are resoundingly significant. They confirm the captor's sense of invincibility and the captive's sense of invisibility. In her book, Elizabeth distinguishes such moments of terrified passivity from Stockholm Syndrome, the idea that hostages sometimes become emotionally attached to their abductors. Elizabeth argues that you don't need to have affection for a captor in order to be compliant. Fear is more than enough. Throughout her captivity, she was afraid for her life and for the lives of her family. Mitchell frequently threatened to kill her or them if she screamed or ran away. As Elizabeth knew, Mitchell didn't make idle threats. He told her that he once threw his own mother down a flight of steps, prompting her to file a restraining order. And while he was holding Elizabeth captive, he tried unsuccessfully to kidnap a young cousin of hers. On July 24, 2002, police were summoned to the home of Lois's sister after a daughter is awakened by someone cutting through a bedroom window. That was later revealed that Mitchell and Barzee were behind the attempted break-in, with Mitchell seeking to make Elizabeth's 15-year-old cousin yet another bride. After several months, it suddenly occurred to Mary Catherine that the kidnapper resembled a man who had once worked on their home as a handyman, a person who called himself Emmanuel. Police discovered that Emmanuel was a man named Brian David Mitchell, and in February of 2003, the popular crime detective show America's Most Wanted aired his photograph in that episode. After clashing with authorities over the issue, the Smart family went public with a sketch of Emmanuel on February 3, 2003. Police downplayed the significance of releasing the sketch, but a woman soon came forward to say that the suspect may be her brother. While Mitchell's stepson identified him after seeing the sketch and a photo on the February 15th episode of America's Most Wanted. Also happening in February, Mitchell, Barzee, and Elizabeth subsisted in San Diego through the holidays, and one day Mitchell announced that they needed to move to a faraway city, like New York, Boston, or perhaps Philadelphia. Elizabeth decided that her only chance lay in getting back to Salt Lake City, where someone might recognize her. She flattered Mitchell, telling him that, whereas God had never spoken to her, Mitchell was practically his best friend. She had a feeling that they should go back to Salt Lake, 
Could he please ask God if she was right? Before long, he told her that Salt Lake City was their next destination. And as she says in her speeches, maybe that stroked his ego the right way. Maybe he thought, my little Sherashub is finally getting it. On March 12, 2003, a passerby recognized Mitchell walking with Elizabeth, who was veiled and wearing a wig and sunglasses. Authorities arrested Mitchell and his wife and returned Elizabeth to her family that evening. Elizabeth said that it wasn't until she saw her dad and he started hugging her again that she knew she was safe. Elizabeth never saw Mitchell again until his trial, which was seven years later. The prosecution against Brian David Mitchell stretched on for years, complicated by questions about him being mentally fit to stand trial. In July of 2005, Mitchell was found incompetent to stand trial. One year after, Barzee was deemed unfit for trial as well, a state judge issuing the same ruling for Mitchell. This ruling put the case on hold while both were confined to Utah State Hospital. But... On March 5th of 2008, Mitchell and Barzee were indicted on federal charges. A federal grand jury indicted them on charges of interstate kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor across state lines. In October, after the state judge denied the request to forcibly medicate Mitchell, the case was transferred to the federal court system. Shockingly, on November 17, 2009, Barzee pleaded guilty. This is two weeks before another competency hearing would commence for Mitchell. Barzee formally admits to her role in the kidnapping and enslavement of Elizabeth Smart. She said, quote, I'm so sorry, Elizabeth, for all the pain and suffering I caused you and your family. She made that statement in court and continued, It's my hope that you will be able to find it in your heart and forgive me. And on March 1st, 2010... Mitchell was deemed competent to stand trial. After years of disrupting hearings by delivering cautions and singing hymns, Mitchell was found competent to go before a jury. The evidence proved that Mitchell has the capacity to assist in his counsel for defense and the ability to behave appropriately in the courtroom, according to a federal judge who wrote in his 149-page ruling. Five months after pleading guilty, Barzee got 15 years behind bars on May 21, 2010. She sentenced to 15 years in federal prison for kidnapping and sexual assault and one to 15 years at the Utah State Prison for the attempted kidnapping of Elizabeth's cousin. The sentences were to run concurrently. She also received a stern reprimand from Elizabeth's mother. What you did to our family and our girl Elizabeth was wrong. It was wrong and it was evil, Lois told Barzee. You hurt our family in ways you'll never know. Mitchell's long awaited trial on felony kidnapping, sexual assault, and burglary charges began with jury selection in November of 2010. Well, it was a few days later, after the trial sudden halt over a request for a new venue, that an appeals court ruled that proceedings can continue in Salt Lake City. Returning from her international Mormon missionary work, for three days of testimony, November 8th through 10th, a composed Elizabeth details the sexual abuse and horrific conditions she endured over that nine months in captivity. 
Taking the stand on November 18th and 19th as part of her plea deal, Barzi explains the revelation that drove her husband's desire to abduct girls until he had 350 wives and describes how she followed orders to prepare the first campsite for Elizabeth's arrival. December 10, 2010, Mitchell is convicted. Rejecting the defense's insanity argument, the jury found Mitchell guilty of kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor across state lines for sexual activity. Elizabeth, who was seen exchanging smiles with her mother when the verdict was announced afterwards, said that she was thrilled with the outcome of that case. Elizabeth, who has launched the Elizabeth Smart Foundation to combat sexual violence, confronts her abductor shortly before he receives a life sentence for his crimes. She said, I know that you know what you did was wrong. You took away nine months of my life and that can never be returned. But in this life or the next, you will have to be held responsible for those actions. I hope you are ready for when that time comes. It was on September 19, 2018, Barzi was granted her freedom under the conditions that she registered as a sex offender and participate in a mental health treatment program. Elizabeth, who voiced her opposition to the parole board's decision, follows with an Instagram post. May we all remain vigilant in watching over our families, friends, and communities from anyone who would seek to hurt or take advantage. I truly believe life is meant to be happy and beautiful, and no matter what happens, that will remain my goal for me and my family. Elizabeth's Personal Life Well, we move forward into more recent times. And remarkably, Elizabeth has managed to return to a relatively normal life shortly after rejoining her family. It was only a few weeks after her return that she hiked with her family to the camp where Mitchell had taken her for nine months. She said that she felt great and triumphant. She said, I don't think it's worth spending time in the past. It's not something I think about. If I feel like I want to retell my story to someone, I will, but I don't have to. I just don't talk about it much. I really don't care to. Elizabeth soon returned to the classroom and resumed her favorite activities. After graduating from high school in 2006, she enrolled at Brigham Young University to study music performance. Additionally, she became an activist on behalf of kidnapping survivors or child victims of violence or sexual abuse, recounting her inspirational story in interviews with Katie Couric and Oprah Winfrey, and eventually becoming a noted public speaker. Elizabeth also helped to author the United States Department of Justice's 2008 handbook for kidnapping survivors. You are not alone. The journey from abduction to empowerment. It was in 2009 Elizabeth moved to Paris for her Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints missionary trip, a period interrupted by a return to the United States to testify against Mitchell. It was in Paris that she met fellow missionary Matthew Gilmore, a native of Scotland. The two married in Hawaii in February of 2012 and went on to have two children together. In 2011, Elizabeth launched the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which aims to empower kids and provide resources and trauma support for victims and families. That year, she was also named a special correspondent for ABC News to report on missing persons and child abduction cases. In 2013, Elizabeth released a memoir entitled My Story, highlighting the horrific ordeals that she encountered while she was kidnapped. In My Story, 
Elizabeth tries to steer the reader away from seeing her experience as so bizarre that it warrants more curiosity than compassion. She stresses the fundamental qualities of her suffering. Hunger. Thirst. Loneliness. Although the story delves into the inhumane treatment that she received from her captors, Elizabeth wrote the book as a form of closure. She said that she wanted people to know that she's happy in her life now. That was from the Associated Press. Elizabeth had thought carefully about the book's tone. She said it's not so gruesome that it would be unbearable to read. That was important to her. You see, her goal as a public figure is to make talking about rape and abuse not so taboo. Although cable news and police dramas are filled with chronicles of sex crimes, Elizabeth's approach is distinctive. At once ladylike, frank, and unembarrassed. At one point, Elizabeth told The New Yorker there's a huge difference between rape and sex. Having experienced both, she knows it's not the same thing. Steve Daly, a former cop who directs Rad Kids, a self-defense program for children that Elizabeth Smart supports, says of her, this woman has the poise and calmness and a power that provides hope. She turns a light on when you're dealing in this very dark subject matter. Elizabeth rejects many of the tropes that cling to kidnapping stories, that victims are forever changed, that Stockholm Syndrome explains her extended captivity, that other people in her situation would have resisted more forcefully and escaped. She said that nobody should ever question why you didn't do something. Elizabeth told the New Yorker. She said that she has no idea why they would have done that. And they certainly have no right to judge you. Everything I did, I did to survive. And I did survive. Maybe there were times that I could have done more. And maybe I would have been rescued. But maybe I wouldn't have. So do I regret anything I did? Well, that answer is a solid no. Remember to log on to the Home of the Mountain Mysteries at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. Follow us on our Discord server and get in on the conversation there as well. Don't miss the Mountain Mysteries gatherings every Thursday night live at 8 p.m. on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, and more platforms. And please support us on Patreon. I'm Chris Sloan for the Mountain Mysteries. Until next time, stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.